I'm Nigel Flynn and this is my story of how my life was turned upside down by a brain injury four years ago. I will tell you how I've been getting on with that and how it wasn't the best brain wave I ever had. Episode 18, Dirty Old Town. Next morning, the reality of everything had started to sink in. No longer was I the attention, the centre of attention of a harem of nurses. No longer did my meals and cups of tea arrive on a tray at my bedside. No longer did I have full control of the TV remote control. I was in my mother's house and needed to adapt to her schedules and routines. Thankfully, she enjoys frequent cups of tea and a wee biscuit. I knew I was going to be well looked after, but I was back in my childhood home, living with my mother, and although I could see my car through the window, there was no chance that I would ever be capable of driving it anywhere. I was stuck. I felt beaten. For the first two weeks, very little happened. No one knew that I had arrived home, and few people came to see me. I slept a lot and settled into my new routine. Was this the new normal everyone had told me about? I hope not. The most exciting thing, but also frustrating part of the day, was going up and down the stairs. I had been very diligent with my hospital physio, and could manage to get up and down in one piece, but my mother had been instructed by the hospital staff to always stand at the bottom of the stairs and make sure I didn't fall. Why? What difference would her presence make? At least she would get to see me fall to my death. My mother lived in her own three-bedroom, two-storey house with a 14-step staircase and a single banister on one side of the stairs. When we decided to fit a second handrail on the other side, we were told that we'd have to apply for permission from building control. What if they refused permission? Was this just a wee farm too far? There were many other things that needed to be organised and applications to be made. It gave me something to do. The first success was my application for a blue disabled parking badge. It's a privilege that most people with disabilities enjoy, that they can basically park their vehicles anywhere without incurring the wrath of patrolling park traffic wardens. I applied in the appropriate wee form and paid my fee. And sure enough, two weeks later, the blue badge arrived. Now that I had a badge, I felt I was truly a full member of the disabled community. Maybe I should pin it to my chest when I go out shopping to see what privileges that the ensuing pity might bring. But after the first two weeks of invisibility, I started to achieve more wins in the disability tournament. I applied for state welfare benefits. I received visits from charities offering to help me. I received offers of more tablets and more physio. It all took off after the first two weeks. It was as if my wee forms had been delayed in the post and only turned up two weeks after I had arrived home. I was starting to get anxious. It felt as if I had been discharged from hospital and I no longer mattered. Even visitors now choose, chose to stay respectfully at a distance as they, as they chose to give me my space and privacy me on home. Maybe I was missing the attention, but it did allow me time to think about all the necessary phone calls and requests I needed to make and all the the necessary reforms I had to fill in and to sleep a lot. When the two-week hiatus ended, it ended with some authority. Suddenly I was in great demand. A few people came to visit me to wish me well and pledged their support 
or just out of curiosity to see how ill I really was. But mostly it was to wish me well and to deliver gifts. And the health service support made an appearance. My care package commenced, two visits per day. The stroke team came to visit and arranged a variety of interventions, most notably weekly physio sessions at the local health centre. I began to notice that there were two types of conversation. Of course, most conversations were only two people taking turns to speak, rarely listening to each other, but mostly just waiting their turn to speak. But what they said also tended to fall into two categories, which were either what they wanted to say or what they thought the other person wanted to hear. The truth rarely managed to get a word in. I had been asked about my illness and condition by medical professionals so often that I had developed a short and very precise little script explaining what had happened and what had been done about it. Sometimes I was even asked to give my PN a score from 1 to 10. But I soon realised that I needed a completely different script when talking to non-medical people, less precise and more sensational, without coming across as too soft-centred. When it comes to tablet talk and organ recitals, nobody wants the trump card to be played too soon. When people ask how you are, the best answer is, oh, I'm fine now. As this allows them to continue to tell you about what currently ails them, or better still, about the time when they were in hospital too. Most people are more visual than verbal, so having already seen how ill you are, they, they will have little need to ask. Hence a simple, oh, I'm fine now, allows the conversation to move in their preferred direction. This is why the, the wheelchair is so visually powerful. If you're seen in a wheelchair, there's clearly something wrong and you're deserving of respect and pity. But a walking stick is merely an invitation to discuss their bad back and how they find it difficult to get out of bed in the, some mornings. After five months in the hospital, I know all about it. But I let you have your turn to speak. You lazy, selfish bastard. In my little prepared script, I stopped using the term AVM since so few people had heard of it, nor knew what it was. Instead, I said I'd had a bleed in the brain and let them see my scar, which is better than saying, do you want to see my hole? <clears throat> that normally satisfied the curiosity of most people. After all, all the girls love a good scar, and mine was a world beater along with a considerable divot across the back of my skull, where the hole in my head had been closed over with a casual blanket stitch. My hair was thicker around the hole, largely because it was difficult to get at it, or to cut it properly. It looked like I had a dark chasm reaching into my back of my head, so I started telling people that was where I attached the USB, char USB charger cable. Most people didn't believe me, but only most. When I'm in a queue in a shop, I often wonder what the people queuing behind me think of my scar. I imagine they'd be curious. I feel that I should turn around and give them some kind of explanation. Maybe even offer to show them my hole. But then again, why should I have to? And really, who would that benefit? It would just be awkward for us both. This has been my own production on Anchor. All rights and permissions are reserved by Nigel Flynn Media. A written version of all 35 episodes is available in print via Amazon. I'd like to thank Mel McCart for letting me use his original music, Paddy McGill for helping me with the graphics, and Elaine Raub for giving me the original idea. You can find me on Twitter 
on at Nigel underscore Flynn.